Hello friends and welcome once again to the Ultimate Motorcycling Podcast, Motos and uh, Friends. <laughs> My name is Arthur Coldwells. In the first segment this week, editor Don Williams talks with associate editor Freeman Wood, who recently returned from Portugal and riding both the GT and Rally Pro versions of the all-new Triumph Tiger 1200. The GT version is more street-oriented than the Rally Pro, and if you're in a quandary about which one interests you the most, Freeman's comments may help clarify things for you. In the second segment, I get to chat with ex-500cc Grand Prix racer Paul Lewis. I met him once way back when, and he said to me, Arthur, you've got to understand, going fast on the racetrack is all about commitment. <laughs> no kidding. In the early 80s, towards the end of Barry Sheen's remarkable career, Paul burst onto the world championship road race scene and caused quite the stir, setting pole position in his very first race at Donington Park. Paul later raced at Daytona for several years running, including one year where he was riding the John Britton precursor machine. Nowadays, Paul is a principal at Salt Motorcycles. They are gorgeously retro, hand-built in Australia, cafe racers, based on the KTM 300cc two-stroke dirt bike motors. Fast and very light, Salt Motorcycles must be an absolute blast to ride. Anyway, Paul is a real character. He's raced against many of the absolute best from the GP heyday, and I loved catching up with him and hearing about some of the craziness of the past 500cc Grand Prix era. I know you'll absolutely love this episode. I had a great time riding the uh, 2022 Triumph Tiger 1200. Uh, I got to ride both the Rally, which is their more off-road uh, motorcycle, and the GT Pro, which is more their on-road bike. Okay. Basically, what are the differences? That, I know they have they're kind of two different lines. I think there's three different GTs and two different rallies. And uh, what are the differences between, in general, the Rally uh, line and the GT line? Yeah, there's actually more similarities than differences. Uh, the engine's the same, the suspension is the same, other than uh, there's more travel on the off-road, the rally style. Uh, tires are obviously a little bit different, but what's, what was interesting to me was that there were so many similarities with the, with the engine, the, the semi-active show suspension, um, the setup, uh, you know, their suspension travel was, as I said, a little bit more in the, in the rally, but they were very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, the, uh, the uh, rally had a little more upright seating, um, slightly larger rise on the handlebars, and plus the front suspension had more travel as well. But other than that, they were very similar in a lot of ways. Um, the only other difference was the, uh, the, the front tire on the, on the rally is a 21-inch versus 19-inch on the GT. Okay, and they both have oddly 18-inch rear tires, I believe. Yeah, that was, that was a bit odd, although it certainly worked well in both applications. Okay. As um, somebody listening doesn't know, 17 inch is kind of the standard for a rear tire on an adventure bike, whereas the 1821 is more. I could see the 18 possibly being on the uh, rally, but it's, it's definitely 18 on the rear of this GT is a bit strange because it would restrict what tires you can get. Yeah, a lot of people talked about that at the, at the ride, that that was the, the main issue is just making sure you could find the right rubber for the application. Right. So but uh, I guess they did their R&D and that's what they came up with. So uh, that's, that's what you get. If somebody came to you and said, which should I buy, the, the Rally or the GT? 
what questions would you ask to let them know so that you could tell them what the right answer is? It's a great question because I think about that a lot. I like to ride adventure bikes uh, quite a bit, but I'm probably more typical adventure rider in that I do a lot of touring. I don't do a ton of off-road. And when you take a bike this, this big and, and oftentimes try and get it off-road, it's got a lot of weight and it's, it requires a fair amount of experience and skill to really get the, the most out of it. So I think you need to really think about what type of riding you like to do. If you are a, a person like me who likes to tour on these big bikes because of the seating position, all the amenities, the power, everything they offer, uh, and you like to go off-road, dirt roads, fire roads, but nothing too crazy, then the GT is a terrific uh, travel companion, a great choice. Uh, if you are a, a more aggressive off-roader, you like to really uh, drop the bags and, and go exploring um, in some pretty gnarly stuff, then the rally's your bike. Um, we, we tested it all day in some dirt and gravel and rough conditions, and boy, it was, uh, it was a tremendous motorcycle. Um, that that 21 inch wheel and the the, the power and setup the the suspension travel all worked uh, really really well off road. Okay, uh, since you're talking about the rally now, let's kind of expand on that. Tell me about the rally on the street and tell me about the rally in the dirt. The rally in the street, we didn't do a ton of riding other than getting to and from various spots to go off road, but it felt very similar to the GT. The, the front wheel, the 21 shield was, was very maneuverable, very flexible, did not feel uh, like it really hindered the handling of the bike really too much at all. And, and once you got off road, it, it, felt, it felt fantastic. Okay, so if you're riding on the street, you're not really even giving up that much to go with the rally compared to the GT. No, I don't think that you are. And in fact, some of the riders I was riding with who, who prefer off-road riding, prefer a larger front wheel, uh, actually prefer the 21-inch on-road on than the, than the, uh, the 19. So it's really preference on what you like. But uh, I rode both and, and really felt that uh, you weren't giving up a lot of on-road performance with that 21-inch wheel. So there's not some kind of vagueness in the front end because of the narrow tire or anything like that? I didn't feel it, but again, we were riding with uh, more off-road bias or 50-50 tires, so we weren't pushing it quite as hard as I was pushing the GT and the turns, but everything that I did, it felt great, and, and off-road, it certainly felt uh, remarkably planted in the turns and the, and the rough stuff, and, and that, that to me gave a good indication of what it would be like on, on the pavement. Okay. Uh, as far as off-road, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the rally? There's a lot of strengths and not a lot of weaknesses. Uh, I, as I said, I, I am more of an on-road rider. And so we were, we were riding pretty aggressively off-road, probably a lot faster than I normally ride. And I felt very comfortable on the bike. Um, we, we, we had great conditions. It wasn't uh, anything too sandy, but there was plenty of, of ups and downs and gravels and tight turns that really got to test how the bike was balanced and the feel, and it, and it felt great. I never felt that the bike was, was really too big, uh, other than it's was so confidence inspiring that I found my speeds getting up a lot higher than I expected. And then coming into a turn, you still have about a 550 pound bike to, to get through the turn. So that was the only time that I really noticed uh, that it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty heavy. Uh, the, other than that, it, it was really very manageable. Uh, it handled uh, all of the bumps really well. Uh, when it did bottom out, it was where you would expect it to be. And, and, and just generally felt very good. Um, I think the, the one area that I would probably want is a little bit more adjustability in the front suspension, um, just to give it a little more stiffness in, in, in some, of the, uh, some of the conditions. Okay, so it has the Showa semi-active suspension. And a lot of us that ride on the street, 
are familiar with semi-active suspension and how it works and, and the, the functions of it and how it's constantly adjusting the damping as you go. And sometimes the spring rate, not the spring rate, but the, the spring preload as you go. And also those of us who ride in the dirt a lot don't have any experience necessarily. There's no dirt bikes with semi-active suspension. So how does the semi-active suspension work as you get hard, into harder, more difficult dirt conditions? Yeah, it definitely adjusts for that. Uh, and what I found is that the more you pushed it, uh, the more you felt it, and the felt that it was it was really adapting to the conditions. The in the in the off road and off road pro modes, it definitely uh, sets up differently for the varying degrees of of uh, sort of uh, aggressiveness that you can adjust in the suspension. But you know, you, you can dial it into to softer, more plush riding, or more aggressive. Uh, sort of firmer riding as well. You know, throughout the, the whole conditions, as I said, it, it felt very planted. I never felt like uh, it was it was losing grip or or was bottoming out in, in a way that you wouldn't expect. Okay. And uh, ergonomics are always important off-road and on-road, of course. How are the ergonomics on a bike with a big three-cylinder motor? You know, most adventure bikes are either singles or, or twins. This is a three. So, how does it respond or how does that affect how you fit on the bike? Yeah, that's a great question. And the previous iterations that I, I had a 2017 version of the, of the Explorer and it's much narrower uh, and, and it feels very good standing up. I stood up all day off road and it, it felt terrific. My knees were just where I wanted them to be. I never felt like the, 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 the bike was too big. Uh, I didn't get the uh, the Explorer model, which has the larger gas tank off-road, but I did ride that on-road and found, again, that they did a nice job of packaging that larger tank in a way that it didn't feel like the bike was 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 very wide at all. Okay, so they didn't, uh, they didn't have you riding off-road with full tanks, did they? <laughs> well, certainly not the full tanks and with the larger tank. No, they did not do that to us. And they did give us uh, some nice Anarchy Wild uh, tires on there to get a lot of grip, so that was helpful. Okay, let's now switch over to the GT. Uh, as a more street-oriented bike, how close is it to riding a sport bike when you ride that uh, the GT on the on the pavement? You know, it's it's funny you say that because that was exactly the feeling I had. Having had previous iterations of this bike, they were fun and very powerful, but not very sport bike-like. They weren't very flickable. They didn't spin up very quickly. They were just powerful, fun bikes. This one was much closer to a sport bike. Uh, the engine spun up very quickly. It was very aggressive. It was very flickable through the turns. Did not feel like a big adventure bike uh, as you pushed it to its limits. And I find myself dragging pegs through turns on a bike that I normally never would, would think about doing that. And that was really a testament to how sporty the bike felt. It was, it was really an exciting bike to ride on road, much more than, than previous iterations. And the only disadvantage that I found is that there was a little bit of throttle snatchiness coming off the line when you first rolled on the throttle. And I think that seemed to be a fueling issue that probably could be fixed in the future. But other than that, it was just, just like riding a sport bike, surprisingly. Okay, now the rally, the GT and the rally uh, both have uh, ride modes. They're not just simple power modes, but the ride modes that impact both the suspension and the motor. Was the snatchiness in the throttle on the GT, was that there in all the modes or only, what modes were there and kind of how did they work? Yeah, that, that's great. And it was, there was sort of standards mode, you, mode you'd expect, which is a sport, a touring, a rain, an off-road. 
uh, the, uh, the, the sport mode is where you saw felt that snatchiness the most. That's when it was most abrupt. The rain mode, you found it the least. And in fact, you still had plenty of power with rain mode because the engine was so powerful. So actually a lot of riders were, were trying, uh, experimenting different things with uh, putting it into rain mode, but also messing with the power a little bit. And it was, it was, uh, it definitely, definitely helped the, the, uh, the feel of the bike. Did you feel like that Triumph had properly matched the change of the suspension action and the change of the motor action together in each of the different modes? It did generally. The only thing that I noticed is there was a bit of front end dive when I was pushing it uh, aggressively through turns and, and that just sort of adjusted it. You had to adjust my dry, riding style a little bit for it, but that I would like a little bit more firmness up front when I was really pushing. Does the suspension or the ride modes, is there a, a personalized mode that you can use where you could say, I want to have the touring uh, power, but I want to have the sport suspension setting or vice versa or any different variations on that? Absolutely, you have, you have plenty of customization. You could customize within the various modes, and then you can also have a user mode where you can customize it completely. And you can adjust power, you can adjust uh, ABS, you can adjust um, traction control, uh, it's, it's and the suspension as well. So it gave you a lot of variability, which or adjustability, which was a really nice feature. Did you have any kind of favorite setup that for you that, because I always know that when I offered that, I always have a setup that's a little bit different than any of the preset ones. Yeah, I liked the the, the uh, standard mode of riding uh, with a bit of the sports suspension, a little bit firmer suspension. Uh, the As I said, the snatchiness of the engine, I tried to sort of take out. And in fact, I probably would have even thought about going into maybe a rain mode, but dialing up uh, some of the other pieces in the suspension to 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 really power through the uh, uh, through the turns. Right, I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much faster they can go with a smooth motor than they can with a overly aggressive throttle response. You're absolutely right. And, and it was really evident in Rainbow where as you rolled on that throttle, it did, wasn't abrupt, but it was certainly very powerful when you got going. The only time you felt it really missing was when you were very aggressive through turns when you were accelerating and decelerating then that rain mode really didn't give you quite the, the, the bump that you wanted. But other than that, it was, it was very smooth. Yeah, I mean, it could be that the rain mode is also, you know, they sync that all in with the traction control. And if it's not issuing traction control uh, data to the ECU, that it, does, it just says, well, you know, you're not really in the rain. You're in the rain mode, but you're not in the rain. And if you actually, you, I'm, I guess you didn't have a chance to ride it in the rain, but if you were in the rain, that perhaps rain mode would act completely differently than it does in the dry. It, it it might for sure, and you know we we you know we came over some 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 rough rougher conditions where we found some gravel, and you definitely felt that back end slip a lot slip out a little bit, um, depending on what traction control level you were in. So, adventure bikes are kind of the the new version of, of sport touring bikes, and uh, part of touring, of course, is having some decent wind protection. How's the the windshield? Is it adjustable? Do you have to do it by hand? Is there a uh, electronic? How does that? How does the bike work as a touring platform? It is a, It is adjustable. It's a manual adjustment, and it worked very easily. You just sort of clamped it and slid it up and down, and it was very easy to move. I found it was not as good as previous versions I had ridden before. Uh, there was still a fair amount of wind hitting you and buffeting, no matter where you had the sort of that that slide. So probably I would want to uh, go for either aftermarket or if they offered a, a touring screen. I think that would probably be an option uh, I would consider. How's the dash? Triumph always has some pretty interesting dashes. Uh, 
displays. The whoever does software for for uh, Triumph seems to very be into some pretty wild designs. How how does how does it look when you look down at the dash, and do you have any kind of choices? Yeah, it's actually very traditional uh, looking. The dashes, and they've got two different choices, which I found to be very informative, very clear, a nice uh, analog style uh, tack, as well as a digital for the for the speed. But there was information that I would normally have on my screen that you kind of had to hunt and pack for to put on. Whereas previous models had you could you could adjust a little bit to put what you want on the screen or it was more analog and you had it there already. And I think that what would be nice in the future is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a TFT display and they can kind of program different ways to different displays options. I think maybe more customization would be great to have in that in the future. Well, what do you like to see that you couldn't find necessarily? Well, it's, you could find it, but it wasn't quite there. So I, you know, I like to either have my uh, tire pressures up. I like to have obviously gas range, um, sometimes fuel, uh, temp bike temperature, uh, ambient temperature, uh, a lot of those things, uh, or having um, my suspension adjustability right there so I can, I can make adjustments more on the fly. Those kind of things I like to have in front of me when I'm riding. Okay, well, it sounds like you want a lot of different things. <laughs> I do, and, and, I, and there are bikes that have it. In fact, the, the previous iteration um, Triumph, although it was part of it was more analog, it wasn't the TFT style, it had a lot of information and very flickable uh, through the, the menus to get to what you wanted to. How easy that, you know, it has the, I think the four button setup or five button setup on the left. How easy is it to navigate, say, you know, on the, while you're parked or on the fly? It was not as intuitive as I hoped it would be, but once you learned it, it was very easy. And the, the joystick and being able to flick through things, once you knew, you know, what, what buttons to press and the home button and, and various pieces, it became very easy to do it. But it was a little less intuitive than, than I would have hoped. Right. We've had a, a Triumph Tiger that we've been riding for a while. And at first, the, the menu was really confusing to me and I could not figure it out. And eventually, and we like something simple like changing the clock, you know, when daylight saving time came on, could not figure that out, but eventually figured it out. And once we were able to, you know, kind of tune into the mindset of the programmer, it actually was pretty good. So it, yeah. it's interesting how sometimes they get it in a way that if you can just walk up to it, you can figure it out. And the other one takes a little while, but once you get it, it, it makes some sense. And it, it's, it's certainly quite a, a a change from the early days of computers on the motorcycles. I kind of remember really as it's like everything was one button. So you were always like pushing, hold it, hold it. And trying to go through anything was completely impossible. And now most of them have a really, really nice interface and it makes all the features that you're paying for easy to use. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. We, we ride a motorcycle for two days and we expect to know everything right off the bat and you can't really and it's a it's really how quickly can you learn the, the navigation through the menus and is it intuitive and easy after that and i would say yes that that it is it is in, that, in this respect okay and going back for touring just a little bit um i'm always into how much fatigue you get when you're riding and in, in addition to the windscreen also how's the seat uh, how's the vibration through the pegs, the seat, and the grips? It, it, it felt really great. The, what, what I noticed most is the, is the balance and weight of the bike felt right. It didn't, didn't feel too light, didn't feel too heavy. 
everything felt just where I would want it to be. The reach to the handlebars, the comfort level of seats. Uh, I had the seat in the higher adjustable level. You can adjust it lower or higher because I like a little less knee bend. Um, my old knees don't like the bend, but, uh, and that was, that was terrific. I was able to get my feet down easy. I never felt like I was too high up on, on the bike. Um, as I said, the seat was very comfortable. There was good body wind protection from the, from the main body of the, the motorcycle and the tank. So that was great. Um, and not too much vibration other than when you really started winding it out. But uh, by that time, the engine was sounding so beautiful that you could care less about the vibration. <laughs> yeah, that there's nothing, nothing like a triple. Uh, you know, every motor has its own kind of song that it sings, but the triple really does seem to be a, a unique one that is, and it has the uh, staggered firing order too, which even adds to it. Yeah, it sounded, when I first started up and heard it running, it was a little more sort of, loud and rough than previous uh, triples that I'd heard. Uh, but once you start dialing up that, that throttle, boy, it just sounded so amazing. And, you know, for me, the, I love the linear nature of the triple engine and how, how much power you had through the, the, the rev range. But this one was almost entirely different. It just spun up so quick and, and was ready to go right there. There was no waiting for that power to build. It was definitely a different experience than previous triples I'd been on. Okay. Now, for me, a successful motorcycle is one where they balance everything. And how, how is the balance of the suspension, the chassis, the handling, the motor? Did, did all the people that were dealing with each one of those aspects of the motorcycle get together and come to a sensible conclusion? I think absolutely. And that, that's probably the, the biggest uh, thing that I found that I liked the most is that is there was that exact balance. The engine was a bit of a star for me because it was just such a, such a beautiful thing fast engine, but everything worked so well together. The, the only minor issues that I found was that front end dive a little bit and that little snatchiness at, at the beginning of the roll on, but those are really minor issues for a bike that you know does so many different things. And having that semi-active suspension, which was more, more active than semi, you know, sucking up the bumps and the, and the bad conditions and the different things over a variety of, of driving conditions was really terrific. And you were of course riding in Portugal, Tell people a little bit about what it's like to ride in Portugal, and would you recommend that as a motorcycle riding destination? Boy, it was absolutely beautiful. The, the first day was on road, and we went up into the mountains outside of the, the town of Faro and found just amazing country roads, plenty of open spaces, wonderful turns, great conditions. The, the roads were in perfect shape. There was not a lot of traffic, uh, cute little towns to go through, so just a, a really great experience. Um, on road. The second day, they took us to a, a area that was a couple hours outside in, into, into Portugal, uh, away from the coast. And it was partially a designated off-road area and then partially just a bunch of dirt roads and country roads, but made up for, you know, miles and miles and miles of terrific uh, off-road riding. So uh, generally, the experience was great. The people are really nice. The food was fantastic. So I highly recommend it. What was the best thing that you ate in Portugal? Oh boy, the uh, octopus was pretty good, uh, and um, yeah, well, generally the fish in general was 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 good. Even all the fish they served. Yeah, they're right there on the coast, so yeah, exactly. Okay, well, uh, we always like to have a good time when we go test motorcycles, and it sounds to me like you had a good time. Oh boy, that was uh, a terrific experience, and I uh, really, uh, really had a great time. So you were absolutely right. Okay, well, thank you very much, Freeman, and. Uh, until next time. Thanks, Don. 
In this second segment, I get to chat with ex-500cc Grand Prix racer Paul Lewis. I met him once way back when, and he said to me, Arthur, you've got to understand, going fast on the racetrack is all about commitment. <laughs> no kidding. In the early 80s, towards the end of Barry Sheen's remarkable career, Paul burst onto the world championship road race scene and caused quite the stir setting pole position in his very first race at Donington Park. Paul later raced at Daytona for several years running, including one year where he was riding the John Britton precursor machine. Nowadays, Paul is a principal at Salt Motorcycles. They are gorgeously retro, hand-built in Australia, cafe racers based on the KTM 300cc two-stroke dirt bike motors. Fast and very light, Salt motorcycles must be an absolute blast to ride. Anyway, Paul is a real character. He's raced against many of the absolute best from the GP heyday, and I loved catching up with him and hearing about some of the craziness of the past 500cc Grand Prix era. I know you'll absolutely love this episode. It's a new company and um, uh, Salt Motorcycles and what we wanted to do is we wanted to launch the company with, we wanted to build an Australian motorbike essentially. Right. But, but to do that from the ground up is, you know, it, it takes years, you know. Um, engine development is very expensive. Ah, well, we've Crazy. got an engine being developed now, which I'll go into a bit later on. But what we thought, uh, Brendan, the stakeholder and founder and I, it, we thought that um, we needed to, to build something that would you know, make people stand up and say, oh, look at that, you know? Right. And, uh, and so, you know, two strokes is the love of, everyone loves a two stroke. You know, <laughs> right. Smell the smoke yeah. and yeah. sound. Yeah. And, and uh, so we thought, well, you know, we, let's just re reinvent a two stroke. So, um, so that's what we did. And we wanted to showcase, um, you know, our, uh, our ingenuity really and what we could do. Right. That's awesome. They look really, they look really pretty. I mean, I love the sort of the old school retro thing. Um, so what, what engine did you start with? That's a KTM motor, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a KTM 300 XC. And the reason we chose that is because it's already legendary in the enduro world. Sure. And in Australia, in some markets, it's road registrable. Unfortunately, not in America, which... Well, probably not in America, yeah. Yeah, but. which, which it, most of our inquiry for this bike has come from America. I'll bet. You know, yeah. Um, oh, we, yeah, wouldn't we love to sell these out of there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we used that because, uh, you know, one, it was a two-stroke and fuel and oil injected. Um, right. And we thought, well, you know, let's, um, let's give it the cafe racer lines. So yeah. we, we thought that, you know, that straight line underneath the tank, um, we've started with that. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. Um, sure. People that own them at the moment love them. You know, it, oh, I'm sure. Because they, they pull from... Yeah, pull hard from 3,000 RPM to, <laughs> to red line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet, I'll bet. So it looks like it's got like maybe a 19 inch front and an 18 rear. Yeah, or correct. We, you know, that's probably not the optimum, you know, in road racing terms, you'd probably think 17. No, of course, well, I mean, everyone's on 17s for sticky tires now, yeah, but yeah, these yeah. look cool like this. And, yeah. And they're plenty sticky enough for what you want. Yeah, I think so. And look, the 19, yeah. 18 was that cafe racer, yeah. you know, um, mantra, you yes, know, as it for were. Sure. So, uh, you know, we've got Metzlers on, on this one here um, and uh, on the yellow one, we've put some Badlax Bridgestones on, which are a bit softer. I had that one up through the mountains yesterday, um, <laughs> just taking it to a I cafe. I you did. Yeah, I did actually, <laughs> I did. And 
it's just just so sweet to ride. Just brings back so many memories of riding TZs and right. stuff. Right. Yeah, it's definitely got that look to it, hasn't it? It definitely has a, a TZ look to it. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very cool. I love them. That's real, and I love the color schemes on them. So, how long has Salt been around? Uh, it's um, under two years. It's um, it's probably August will be August will be two years. Uh, um, that we've, okay. we've, we've, we've been going. Um, all the machinery you see out the back is, um, you, you're aware of a brand called Holden? Sure, of yeah, course. So Holden uh, um, ceased uh, production um, uh, some time ago now. And uh, Brendan James, who in 2017, uh, happened to be in Adelaide at the time and purchased some welding robots and some pipe bending machines and just w <laughs> with the view to commission them at some point to, right. to action the salt motorcycle you know right. production line uh, right. you know some ways away off that at the moment but uh, but the whole idea is we you know it, we wanted to sort of do everything in Australia the benches are all made in Australia um, right and uh, right and that's that's what we wanted to do because you know, people in Australia don't make anything anymore you know it's right it's made offshore yeah, it's all made offshore yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. why uh, why salt motorcycles what what's uh, salt is that an acronym or is it just uh, well, uh, well okay, it was it, it, it morphed into salt from you know from rusty from all, all these names we, oh, we, we had kicking okay. about but the street we're in is basalt street ah, um, uh, Brendan okay. used to mine basalt <laughs> uh, and, okay. and, and it's it's short, sweet, and and the logo yeah. we thought is a really cool logo because because reversed. If you have a look around the around the other side of the tank here, right? Reversed, it's like a two, a flying two, two stroke. You know? Oh yeah. So. Um, oh, that that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I point some things. I was out. trying. I'm thinking like, oh, it's an acronym. You know, South Australia lightweight yeah, yeah. you know and I couldn't I couldn't quite uh, yeah. <laughs> just well, salt just because they're a bit salty yeah well we thought uh, you know you, you say South Australia and uh, you know, the salt salt flats there um, right right but, I don't um, know I mean, I'm just trying to I was just trying to figure it out why salt but yeah. that's cool. it was short you know it's, right. it's easy to remember yeah yeah and uh, and if you have a look at the bike as well is that everything's carbon fiber like the, right. the, the guards carbon fiber 3d carbon fiber um, wow. uh, uh, fender mounts um, yeah. uh, all the all the carbon fiber radiator guards were all uh, designed and 3d printed first in, in like a resiny type material molds made and then sure. and then uh, made from that the you know, the tank is handmade aluminium Wow yeah and uh, that's that's you know been very very tricky to maintain that sort of quality sure because you've got some serious front suspension on that what's that yeah so it's um it's white power it's it's the suspension okay. off a uh, 300 exc oh i see okay then we've actually modified it and okay. uh, changed all the all the dampening and right. it's got you know, the right amount of travel um for a road bike and the same as with the rear so basically you take the, the ktm and use as much of the donor bike as you can yeah and then and sort of build this cafe bike out of it yeah i mean we've changed the you know oh, we've built it from ground the ground up um, well, the exhaust pipe was the trickiest thing because we we couldn't have an upswept exhaust pipe on the bike it just wouldn't have sure. worked right um right uh, so so interestingly what we what we did not giving away trade secrets but um we uh, scanned an, an upswept expansion chamber, right. and then we put that scan in SolidWorks, 
we've then uh, it got all the volumes all measured right, uh, okay. and, and put it on a horizontal plane uh, and then had an expansion chamber uh, from go to woe. And then we scanned the, the, the chassis and then basically put the pipe on, you tucked it all in so we could, right. so it could fit in there. Yeah, it looks absolutely beautiful. I mean, that really totally works. I love it. Yeah, and we, you know, we've uh, got all the covers. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, we, we put a, um, a two-stroke performance uh, high compression head on it and had all the, had all the, um, yeah. the ECU reflash so it had a bit more oil. Okay. Uh, more oil and, uh, um, yeah, so rewired the wirings. We had to had to use a um, because the bikes didn't have any. They just had a kill button, really, oh, okay. and you turn the kill button on, you right. go. We use it. We chose an Acewell Taco because it's got everything we need in there. Right. The switch gear is all CNC made. Um, uh, wow. <laughs> I remember that. That is awesome. <laughs> nice. We just, just let that smell happen a bit more. Yeah. Absolutely ripper, <laughs> as the Aussies say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah. Wow, I love it. Look at those back. Look at the tail lights. Yeah, they're they're a stop and go. They're a German, German right. tail light. Yeah. Wow, you've really put a lot of thought into this. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously the KTM swing arm on it, the yeah. original aluminum swing arm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's beautiful. So bikes going forward, you know, we'll, uh, we'll have our own. We've got a lot on the drawing board that, that's, that's going to come from this. Right. Um, but like I say, we want to just to show, show uh, At least what you're customers what, what we do, you know. Yeah, we do. yeah that's great. Look, it, it's an expensive motorbike. Um, you know, it's, um, sure, what are they, like 29K or something, Australian? 39K. 39, okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. So it's, um, but it's hand-built and, you yeah. know, donor bike. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine you're going to sell huge volumes of them. No, but, no. But the guys that do buy them are going to be there. Oh, they'll be delighted. Edition. They'll be, be delighted. Absolutely thrilled. Yeah. They'll, they'll Have delighted. you sold any yet? We've any sold a couple. Yeah, oh, yeah. nice. And, um, okay. And the guys that have got them are loving them. They're, they're, oh, that. They're, you know, it's a strange ride for them. You know. Um, yeah. Because they because they make so much power and these make yeah, right. fifty five plus horsepower. Right. And they weigh nothing. 110 by the look kilos. <laughs> you know? so, so it's... Um, it's uh, I'll just pull that forward. And yeah, jump on, Arthur. Yeah. Wow, that weighs absolutely nothing. Yeah, it? and it's got like 15... 15 litres of fuel in there as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, despite the whole cafe racer position, it's actually, it's pretty comfortable. It's not yeah, too well, radical. I mean, you're not like... Oh, yeah, well, on that one, we've, we've got lower bars. This one here, we've got American Woodcraft bars. Okay. Yeah, yeah Woodcraft, ever, yeah, ever for sure. aware of those. Yeah. They're, you know, seven degree uh, drop and they're three inch rises. Right. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. I want the foot, foot pegs aren't really real set. They're no, no, if you... If you so it's I'll, not I'll, crazy, I'll not crazy radical, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like that. Yeah, we I didn't want it. Was great. You know, we didn't want to put rear sets on it and make it a road racer. You know, yeah. It's not a road yeah, racer, yeah, it's no. a cafe racer. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Two finger brake, you know, just because it only weighs 110 kilos, so you don't... Yeah, the things, yeah, yeah. you don't yeah. need much to, yeah. to stop it, do you? Mm. That's, what a great idea. I love it. I'm not surprised you've had so many uh, inquiries from America. 
Yeah, so we want to, so we're, we're trying to find a way how we can get these bikes over there. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe in a, in a kit form, because if, if there's 300s and 250s KTMs there currently that are previously registered prior to the, you know, the, the e, E6 or Euro, Euro right. 6 laws, Maybe they can swap over the well. We can we we, we, we can give them uh, we can give them the subframe, the tank. We can the bodywork, you know, the exhaust. Right. We, we can we can sell them like a proper kit. Sell it as a kit, mm. and then have somebody assemble it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we've obviously we you know run Cush Drive because yep. the, the enduro bikes are, are a sure. direct drive, and because they sure. don't need a Cush Drive because they've got dirt. No, of course not. We've got. Yeah, asphalt. In, so you've in, in converted in it to Kush Drive. Yeah, yeah. Nice. What a fun bike. Yeah. So presumably it's got a top speed of I don't know, probably 150k or something maybe. Well, it's 4600 RPM at 100 k's, so it it's okay. it's, so it's it can go very fast. It's yeah. Probably got a lot more than that. Though, it might it? do. Yeah. 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 It um. Yeah, it's it's certainly faster than the law. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, judging by the Australian speed limits I've come across, just about everything's faster than that. It's really difficult out here. You, you, the the yeah. fun police have, have really, really clamped put down, a damper on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but oh, well. you know, there are there are places you can go to. And the beauty part about this is you don't have to do breakneck speeds to get that get no. that feel good factor, the grin yeah. factor. Of, yes. You know, yeah, I found that with this Royal Enfield. Mm. It puts out almost no horsepower. It's this sort of big, heavy old retro bike. Yeah, man, it's like the fun to ride. Yeah, the old, you know, it's fun to ride a, you know, a slow bike fast. You know, rather fast bike slow. I always say to people, you know, it's motorbikes is where it's at. If I go to a barbecue and there's an old pile of junk, Honda stepped through, laying on its side with grass growing through it, I'm the first to get it, go and get it, and start <laughs> up. Yeah. Race it around the around the clothesline, you know, <laughs> right. and uh, yeah, a few yeah. beers and away you go. But um, yeah, and because uh, and it's you know the the thing about riding bikes is when you let the clutch out, you know, you, you it, all your worries are gone. It doesn't matter what you ride, whether it's a Royal Enfield, a Salt two stroke, yeah, you know, um, you know Harley. It's because um, you're so focused. I think. It's, so. It focuses you so much. I mean, you can't ride a motorcycle and fall asleep. That's right. That's one of the reasons so why they just, don't have... You forget everything. You yeah. Just, or you're just so yeah. sucked into the ride and yeah. the experience. It's interesting that you say that because uh, people say to me, well, how come uh, MotoGP doesn't have, don't have radio contact? Well, yeah. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Marquez, just button it off just a tad, you know. But, but uh, I think uh, it, it, it's, you do, you're doing so many things and uh, the co your oh, conscious yeah. mind's fully taken up. It's, it's hard yeah. enough to see the pit board, let alone, and your dash right. to say in. Let alone, yeah. uh, and yeah. it, it gets me when you see the F1 drivers and yeah. they're having a long conversation. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 When, when did you start your racing career? Oh, um, I started racing mini bikes at you know, 11 years old. Okay. Yeah, it's a bit of a long story. That if, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole episode. If you want that's all right. Yeah. That's okay. So yeah, I the, want to hear. I want to hear about it. Yeah. I mean, you first came to attention. I mean, I was a. Uh, when was it? It was. I mean, it was at Donington Park, and all of a sudden, there's this crazy Australian kid, the Mighty Ant, that we called him. And suddenly turns up and sets freaking pole position in the 500 class. That's a good memory. That's yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. it was exciting that day. Yeah, 
There's, there's a lot that went into that. It didn't just all of a sudden happen. But um, I'm sure, but, but you'd never seen the track before. No, oh, uh, well, Chas Mortimer. You, okay, Chas sure. Mortimer you, okay. You, you used to run a racing Race, school. Right. Ra race school. And um, so if, if I just wind back the clock a little bit, um, we made contact with a guy called John Cooper, you know, Coops, yeah. and, uh, and Bill Lomas. They were, okay. they were friends of my sponsor, in Kevin Dillon, in, in Australia. All right. And um, they knew I was going to come out there, and they essentially said, well, we'll, we'll look after him. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, by that, they, they picked me up from Gatwick Airport and take me, you know, to my accommodation, you know, which... Um, which was really interesting because it was uh, it was 1983 and it was um, it was stinking hot. It was so hot, <laughs> right. and, and, I, and, I, and it just blew me away because I, I, all I thought of England was bowler hats, fog, and, <laughs> right. and, and rain, and drizzly, and and and, and, yeah. and, 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 yeah, and, and grumpy people, you know. <laughs> right. And the fir first thing we when, we when we stopped, we get getting our trolleys with our suitcases, and this, this old lady was trying to help me. I was like, is she mad? She was just generally being nice. <laughs> and I turned to Gary Flood, my, my technician, who came with us, and I said, uh, well, this is not bad, is it? And then Bill Lomas picked us up at, at the airport and uh, was telling us the stories. And, that, and he hopped on the M1, it's the motorway in right. south of England, you know. Sure. And, and we, we went north. And I couldn't see any houses, couldn't see any. It was early in the morning, there wasn't many people about. I <laughs> Where is it? Where am I? <laughs> yeah, and uh, and then you see a little village and all the houses all, all all squashed together. And then he took us to, he took us to a, a, off the A52 off Derbyshire Way to a place called Somersal Herbert, and it's um, okay, and, and never it was heard like, of it. it was like a little village in between Derby and uh, Utoxeter. The locals call it Uchita. Okay. Utoxeter, you probably know that. No, yeah. never heard of it. Uh, and uh, I'm a, I'm, fr I'm from South London originally. Yeah, well, you would know it's in, in, in the north side, you know. But, <laughs> right. Yeah, but uh, and in, and this and this had this Somersal Herbert had its own village, and the, and where we were going was we were in the servants' quarters of this big manor, thirteenth century ma mansion, manor house. Right. And so so our bike was parked in like in the uh, where the horses in the stables and. Uh, and we had a little cottage, and there was a there was our own uh, we had our own uh, church and a graveyard, you know, and the gra and, and there was like tombstones there, 12th century, 13th century, you know, tombstones. So it was it was a real, you know, bit of a culture shock. It's culture, yeah, for a young Aussie. That's right. And and Bill and and John Cooper had filled up the fridge and stuff with with uh, the appropriate stuff for a bunch of Aussies and. Uh, and so that, that's where it started. So I got in contact with them. Um, but had you, had you won, a, you know, championships in Australia? I, I'd won seven Australian championships in 253. Okay, uh, so five. you had a pretty impressive resume. Yeah, yeah. And had you ridden a 500 before? Uh, yes, I, um, I, I had a 500 uh, in Australia, Mark 7, and I uh, won a couple of big Mark races. Mark 7? RG500 Suzuki. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so that... And Square four. And uh, we had some really good races. Got the lap record at Bathurst. Uh, wow! Did the, the 307 k's down Common Strait on, on that what? bike, and uh, uh, <laughs> it was um, it, you know. So we had, and we sent that bike in Easter off to England, you know. And okay. uh, and uh, so I didn't ride. Uh, Donington was my birthday. It was a th July, third of July. So, okay. And so we we the bike packed the bike up in Easter, and then we didn't go to England until. And so you shipped the bike to England. Yeah, we did. We did. And so the day the day it arrived, 
uh, we, we were already in England uh, in our servants' quarters of our manor house, and it was a Sunday, <laughs> right. so, it was a, so it was a Sunday market, church market there and there as well. Right. And they had their, and the son there, Rupert, was uh, was there. There was high tea happening and uh, <laughs> strawberries and cream. Strawberries and cream, yeah. Right. It was, uh, we, were, we, were, we were jet lagged. They're playing and stuff. cricket on the green. Yeah. Right. So uh, so the bike eventually turned up uh, in customs, and we went to pick it up. And the first day I started up, uh, it it stopped. You know, we took it to Mallory Park. I did, I did uh, warm it up in the pits, and uh, the next thing, the engine failed. And uh, just as I was warming up, and it turned out someone had put something down the rear exhaust pipes that went straight into the cylinder. And uh. Uh, so, so from day one, we had we had drama because we didn't have a lot of money, we had zero money, um, typically typical Aussie. And uh, we, um, <laughs> so we got to work on the bike, um, got it running. Did, rode it all around uh, Derbyshire, you know, <laughs> running it in, and then on the, uh, on the street, on the streets around the, the back of uh, the Derbyshire box. there, and uh, and uh, anyway, so John Cooper introduced me to Chas Mortimer, and so Chas okay. had the school. So this is before the race at Donington, the, the, right. the eventful race, and um, and so we managed to get on the track, you know, and okay. and it was remember it was really hot, boiling hot, sure, you know? sure. Uh, and a lot of palms said uh, it. Um, it was hotter than 1976. I don't know, you wow, yeah, 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 1976, yeah. record-breaking summer, yeah. Yeah, 1983. Yeah. Anyway, so Chad said, Louis, you can go around uh, the track, but just don't upset the, the, the riders, you know, try and go you know, <laughs> on the other side of the track with them and give them, give them plenty of leeway when you, you know, when you pass them and stuff. So I got out there and I was just, I just, just, just over the moon right, racing at Donington. How, how, how good is this? So, and I was just on the pipe everywhere, wheeling in and out the, the poor bloody track day riders. <laughs> in and, out. And, uh, and before I knew it, you know, the, I came in and Chad said, you know, you're only, you're only a second off a lap record. You know? And I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> and I, was, I bounced off the bike and, uh, and um, anyway, so, Come, and it was mainly because we're in the back of Donington. There's a, there's the Craner Curves. I don't know if you heard of Craner sure, Curves. Sure, yeah. There's right a lot of people in the Craner Curves club. Right. Yeah, and essentially that's when you, when you, when you, when you go left down Craner Curves, you a lot of people front. lose the front. They, get, yeah. they, they go, sure. they go a long way. Right. And, and uh, you slide a long way on that grass. Slide, yeah. Not and that I've done it, but yeah. yeah. Well, I wasn't in the club, and I was full on <laughs> down, down there. And then the, the next right hand turn is what they call the old hairpin. Yeah. It's the, it's the the least hairpin bend I've ever seen in my right. life. It's more like a 90 degree right hand. Yeah, right. and if you get, you can go in as tight as you like and just run, run wide. So no one did it apart from me, because remember I was on my own around Donington, finding my own way around. I found, a, I found an amazing line, you know, which was basically <laughs> out of crane the curves, let the bike go, right. and, just let, and just arrive at that old hairpin wherever you right. land, and then just let the bike run out wide. You know, it's a little bit slow coming out, but... Uh, but, you know, Interesting. Yeah, I had. You know, it's, um, Has anyone start, found that line subsequently? I don't think so. It? I don't think so. Oh, really? No, so I should go back. It? You know, yeah. and a vintage rider. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and um, uh, so uh, and so you know, I found myself um, on the first qualifying session. Yeah, it so you it. entered the Grand Prix. So Chaz was like, "Why don't we just enter you for?" The no, he, he. I was. I was on my own. He just helped me. He just let me oh, ride ride the track. So Chaz didn't help me. Go further. He just he just was really just kind and let me go just on the to track. Just let you ride the track. Yeah. So at yeah. least you'd seen the track. Yeah, You'd done a couple of laps. That's right. right. That's right. And then uh, the Saturday came, or the Friday came, and you know, within, you know, within uh, half an hour, I was already on 
the pole, you know, or ahead of Mamola. You could believe it. We're like, who's this guy? Yeah, yeah. And, and it was just Maybe ahead of Mamola and uh, I think it was eighty-three. Uh, Haslam, uh, um, Raymond Roche. Uh, yeah. Who else was there? Gardner. Was Freddie Spencer wasn't there? In uh, was I don't think no. Freddie was there. I don't think he was there. The funny thing, funny thing is that I was in paddock seventy-six in the boom, <laughs> boom docks, right in the gravel somewhere, you know. <laughs> and then uh, uh, this is on the Friday, and then Barry Sheen must have heard you know, about my plight, and he sent Ken Fletcher down or one of the guys down right. to fetch me, you know. Yeah. And they fetched me, and they, and he and I and he allowed me in his garage, so I was in. I was in Barry's garden, I don't know if you remember that, but I was in... Yeah, in, I, I think in, I do. No tie warmers, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. and, and Barry's bike used to sound like this. Whap! 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 You know, it's so lean. My bike was... Whoa! <laughs> and all the power, you know? And, and, and what happened with, with Barry is that coming onto the back straight underneath the Dunlop Bridge, you know, that, that, that turn, sure. that, that, that turn in practice, I'd... Um, Oh, barachine, this barachine. So I thought, oh, I'll catch him. And I got loaded drive and I was right coming up to him. And I thought, oh, I'll just go behind him here. He doesn't know I'm there. And then I pulled out just underneath, underneath the Dunlop Bridge and sat up and went past him like that. He was pissed off. He was pissed off. He, you know, Ken Fletcher is his mechanic. He was like, fuck a Louis bike. He passed me like that. <laughs> Yeah, but oh, I, I, stay, I, I stayed with him for a little bit because um, Suzuki was in um, Gatwick and he lived in Charlwood, which yeah. I, used to go, I used to go around his house all the time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pass me on the back wheel, that is not good. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, I, yeah, I, I did set him some poor decisions. Yeah. And we both ended up failing that race because he, he had a big slide and had to pull out. Oh, and, yeah. my, and, my, um, and whilst in, I think I was first or second, running first or second, and the... Um, the rear um, caliper support. I was running like a really lightweight titanium um, rose joint, okay. and it broke, it broke. under brakes, and it, and, it, and it all and it sliced the back of the seat like a bacon slice. And Oof. unfortunately, I was I was out. But that that televised race um, gave me um, gave me enough uh, media to get me a start in the British Grand Prix. Right. Yeah. Wow. And I qualified in the front row. You did, yeah. For the British Grand Prix. And that was the sad day. That was when uh, Norman Brown and Peter Huben got killed. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Sad for them. Sad for me because I was running really up there. I was, right. I think I was fifth or something um, yeah. in the GP of the yeah. first half of the race. Yeah. They were in the back, mid, mid to back, back of the field. Right. And... Uh, and what happened was one of them, I don't, I don't know which one was Norman or Peter, but um, had, had an engine failure coming oh, onto the back okay. straight. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and the guy behind him quickly went out of his way. The guy behind him went out of his way and then either... Pe uh, and one of the other just rear-ended him. Yeah, you know? rear-ended him at, at speed, at, at speed. At, at speed. And, and they didn't stop the race because I remember I was dicing with Luke and Ellie at the time and it was... Oh, know, okay. And uh, there were, it was just a mess there. Right. And actually, Barry Sheen stopped the race. He actually, okay. he actually, if you watch the footage, he actually um, put his hand up. And put his hand up, and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good on him for doing that too. But yeah, but you know, yeah, what a tragedy it was. Yeah, and then it went on the restart. Um, but you were doing pretty well though. You were dicing with Luke and Ali. Yeah, I was in dicing fourth, I think, and okay. um, 
uh, which I'll probably privateer. Yeah, and, and All right, that's pretty good. But stepping back on the start still line. Still on the same bike? Still yeah, on the same yeah it's on my bike, yeah. <laughs> my bike that the, the parents mortgaged their house to get, you know, and uh, and uh, Gary flood the tuna and and um, that is awesome. Yeah, yeah, and in the second part of the race, because because of course in Australia all the all the races that I competed in were clutch start, so I know I was forty four kilos, so I, right. I just about nearly won everything because I could get away off the line, and I right. I never had to push the other bike, you know. But when I went to England and uh, and raced in the GPs, it was push start, so. And oh. Suzuki's are hard to, you know, uh, right. hard to start at the best of times. So I was always last away, you know, it was, um, oh, it was, okay. uh, and you can't give, you know, you can't give Freddie Spencer three seconds lead off the, <laughs> off the start. He's already three bloody seconds faster than you to start with a lap, you know. And so it was a bit frustrating, you know, the, the whole, sure. the, it was, the, initially it was really good uh, and uh, I was excited and always wanted to be a world champion. Um, right. Uh, I haven't got many regrets and apart from whenever i watch moto gp now i just long to be on the on the rostrum you know but i think yeah that's you know i'm sure that's what i would have having liked, tasted you know. it yeah, yeah yeah but still you know like i've i've um i've got a lot of stories i'll bet i'll mm. bet you do mm. wow that's awesome so uh so what then happened after your racing career you finally decided to call it a day and yeah well, it's um, it came to a pretty a bit of an abrupt halt. I, I managed to get a factory ride or semi-factory ride with Heron Suzuki, and okay. when Barry Sheen retired, right. and um, and you know there was two Suzukis running in the GPs. Then there was the Galena team, HB sure. Suzuki, and there was the Heron Suzukis. And, okay. And um, you know it was it was a really good learning. Per, uh, you know I learnt uh, uh, some you know really valuable lessons. You know. Um, you know, certainly with en with chassis building and engine building and design, you know, because as a factory rider, it, it's not mandatory that everything's great. Right. You know, you're, you're, you know, we didn't have test riders. We were the test riders, you know. <laughs> right. You know, I, I think really, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I was the first person to run a radial front tyre, you know. And, uh, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, and a full carbon fibre chassis. So that must have been probably 86, maybe? 86, yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, it's... Um, like the Suzuki in a perfect world, you know, going on uh, in in those days, there was 36 riders entered a GP, and there were, and wow. there were probably probably another 21 to enter. Right. And um, and the Suzuki's really, if if it was a dry race, uh, and they were on form, you know, to get in the top 10 would is a struggle, you know. So we're always waiting for wow. wet race or right. or some sort of leveler to try and. Right. try and get up there but you know like I, I managed uh, I think at um, I think in Spain I, I finished uh, 10 or 11th and 9th I think in Monza um, but the problem we had was with the with the carbon fiber chassis was it was 150 percent stiffer than the aluminium chassis right and just you could, just couldn't get the suspension to work right you know, I think nowadays they could probably they, with technology and computers they could put the right weave in the carbon fiber to yep. give it the exact amount of flex that, that's required in the headstock yep. or the swinging yep. arm but our, but our bikes um we were, were you know very light and and um and not a not a welded part on the bike it was all it was all uh, stuck together with sibagagi araldite basically oh really yeah. just glue glue everything yeah, yeah, was machined it glued together that's right it was uh, wow. and um it was uh it, you know you know, quite uh, 
quite interesting to ride. Um, <laughs> but, and uh, you know, I fell off it at, at, at speed a lot as well. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, interesting to see how it came back yeah. you know, uh, on the truck. You know, generally with everything off it. <laughs> but uh, but I think you know, I, I was I was so excited about um, about being a factory rider. I think the the whole the whole occasion of being the GPs. You know, I was twenty six then. No, it was right. it was. Um, and I didn't have a manager either, really. Right. So, um, and I think I, I made some poor decisions. Uh, you know, one of them was at the end of '86, Suzuki kept me hanging on, didn't renew my contract, but oh, didn't okay. didn't say I didn't have a contract. Right. So, you know, and uh, and I crashed towards the end of the year and broke broke a bone, uh, broke bones in my foot. So I missed Sweden, and they gave one of the rides to Kevin Schwantz and to. Neil McKenzie, so I had to sit okay. and watch them do really well, you know. Ugh. And yeah. uh, oh, that must have been frustrating. Yeah. So then, then so it was eighty, you know, waiting for the eighty-seven s series, and uh, all the all the while I was, uh, they were threatening to give me the V four Suzuki, the V four engine, oh, which nice. uh, which we wanted. In fact, even in even in the winter testing, we we tested because uh, you know the Suzuki was a square four engine. Uh, and revalve, uh, sorry, disc valve induction. Right. So rather than test the V4, I tested the square four with the V4's induction. You know, if, oh, if, interesting. I'll, I'll step okay. that back a bit. So, so it was a place called the then Yugoslavia, a place called um, um, what's the name of the racetrack? Rijeka. Rijeka. Oh, Rijeka. Rijeka. Okay. So we went there uh. testing early on, and um, and the disc valve motor. This is the plight I had. Um, was super fast. It had you know like power from, you know I don't know from nine thousand to eleven one. You know, at the great nothing before and then all all everything. That's the thing with the five hundreds. They you know probably had one hundred and thirty five hundred and forty horsepower. Right. And and so I can remember this test day. We we had Suzuki hide the track and you know we were out there. It was the only place. In the winter season, it was it was warm enough to, to ride, and uh, and I came in the pits, and I remember saying to Simon Tung, uh, one of my chief technicians, and and Mike Sinclair, I said, "That's flying, you know, it's so so good." Then I jumped on the other bike, which was uh, the the reed valve induction, right. so the so the same induction that they were using on the later four four before, and I went round and and uh, I came back in after two laps. And I said, "This is a snail. It's you know, it's it's oh, a right. slug, you know." Really? And they said, let's just give it a bit of a go. And I came back in and said, no, it's just, it's, it's useless. Then Mike Sinclair said to me, well, what's funny, you're two seconds quicker on this, on this bike. You know? Oh, really? Right. And I went, really? And then that was a lesson, there's another lesson as well. I was like, well, hang on. You know, it's about real rideability, you know. So right. bikes that generally feel fast, Right. You know, don't if it feels slow, aren't necessarily slow. You know. Right. So, uh, Interesting. That's a lesson. So that was the that was the, and the other thing. So what was that? So you're getting like more power out of the corners. You're just more rideable power. Drive. Yeah, better better low down, better drive, right. uh, and, and getting on the power earlier. More mid range, just coming, just carrying more corner yeah. speed, maybe a little bit, or well, certainly better out of the corner anyway. Yeah, hundred percent. And and uh, the thing is with the the disc valve Suzuki and, and uh, Galena were suffering from the same thing. You know, we had. Um, we had a lot of gearbox modifications we could do. You know, okay. we, we had you know we had probably five or six, maybe seven different options of first, second, third, fourth, and right. fifth. So, 
so we could change the, the ratios in those gears. Right. And generally, we had to do a lot of things to, to try and ride those bikes. Um, you know, we'd, we'd you know, say for instance, something like Mizano, which was a lot of left-hand bends, you know, uh, one third gear bend, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't pull out of there, but second gear was too low and third gear was too high. Right. You know? So, and you, 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 you had to make choices, you know, of sacrifices. Well, we'll work on, on these corners. Right. So we'll run that gearbox for there. And for th these particular bends, instead of, instead of uh, changing the gearbox there, we'll, we'll deal with the th high third gear Right. But we'll have to run a low. We'll have to run a more a greater lean angle, you know, because right. of course a rear tire is is a certain diameter when it's upright, sure. and when it's laying on its side, it's, it's, it's a, a much it's smaller diameter. It's much smaller diameter. So that's how we ran the gear the gear ratio, and that was a, that's so, so we, we so basically <laughs> we run the tire on its edge. We short shifted. Short shift the gear. Short shift the gear and put the bike on the side, and then wah, and then, <laughs> and then pick up and go, you know, and and and, and that little tip. Gave me gave me um, wow. a, a, a head start at Daytona every time because every bike I rode at Daytona I ran a I ran a much taller gear than anyone and I did exactly that. Yeah. So you just run the bike, run the tire, run up head. the top, run up the top. You know, come out the infield, go straight up to the top. Don't bo don't bother about going. Gradually getting up to that triover. Go, go straight to the top. Go right along the wall where, the, <laughs> right. where, there's, where, the, where it's where it's still air. Right. And then and then short shift fifth and sixth and throw the bike on its side, whatever bike it is, and right. you, you, you'll have another you know, 10, 15 mile an hour on anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so the Suzuki was a... And then, uh, and, and then of course, I... I, I um, That's you know, awesome. <laughs> but there's stories from the north. But um, the, th the other thing is that with, with the Suzuki, that, so that was heading towards the, uh, 86. There was... a a preamble to that in 85, I, I had a couple little rides on the Suzuki before that when Rob McKelney was riding. Sure. So Rob, Rob, Rob went to Agos, to Yamaha, and I went to Suzuki. Right. And then at the, the end of 86, there was a question. They had Neil McKenzie, who was with our ride right. uh, and fast. Right. They had you know, some, a guy called Kevin Schwantz that was, that was fast. Pretty decent. Pretty decent. <laughs> 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 Funny chap as well. Yeah, he's right a great guy. No, yeah, he's, I know him quite well. He's yeah, a great guy. He's lovely. Yeah, yeah he really is. Yeah, there's, probably, there's, there's some stories that we, I've got about him and me, but um, <laughs> not for the podcast, I don't think. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, but then, so then at the end of '86, I, I had an offer from the, the then Kajiva to, to. Oh, okay. And uh, and it was good money, uh, but I was I had this lure of the V4, and Suzuki hadn't signed me off. Right. Yeah, you know, and so I was lying in wait, lying in wait, and then, okay. uh, then Bubba, he had his crash, had that crash. that big crash. So the cabin yeah. Honda was going, going spare as well, uh, which, uh, which you know was very tempting, te very tempting, because I, you yeah. know, I wanted to win. I didn't want to muck about down the down the back, you know. Right. Um, and so, uh, so I, I didn't talk further with Kajiva. Suzuki hadn't finished me off. Sign me off, right. uh, and Cabin Honda. The Japanese were keen to have me, right. um, but I think I might have been a bit too hot-headed right. for that bike, okay. in their view. And okay. they chose a, a safe pair of hands, and they put Rob McKelney on on the bike. You know, okay. uh, and so I was. I found myself without a ride in '87. Oh. yeah. So so then I had to sort of okay, I'll just lie. I'll just well, of course, that was the year that Wayne won the championship. 
Yeah, 87. Yeah, yeah. 87. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's so right. on the Honda. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty evil handling that bike. Yeah, and he, you know, know, like, yeah, give it to him. He, he's, you know, he, uh, yeah, he rode fantastic that year. He yeah. was uh, aggressive with that thing. It's funny, me, me, I haven't spoken to what, you know, we never got on, you know. Right. Yeah. In Australia, I don't know, I don't know maybe because we were competitive and maybe because That's probably we, one year at Brands Hatch, you know, <laughs> I was leading by a mile and uh, he went up the inside of Marshall and Haslam into Paddock right. and T-boned me, you know. Oh. And I was on the private bike, it was a you know, Honda Britain. Right. Uh, and, you know, I can remember sliding down the road, you know, throwing my fists around when I was, <laughs> I was still sliding. But, but you know, recently uh, we've reached out to each other and, and, nice. and uh, good. you know, it's, uh, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're good. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. It's funny, I mean, you know, like Rainey and Schwartz absolutely hated each other while they were racing. It was terrible. Yeah. But of course, you know, yeah. once everyone's career's over, we're all like, you know what, actually he's a pretty good guy. <laughs> oh, there's all, there's, all, there's all sorts of mind games going on oh, in the yeah. race. You know, oh, yeah, the, the big one is when, you, you know, when, you're, when you're out on the pipe <laughs> and you're on the track and you see your competitor coming out of the pits, you know, <laughs> and they're just ahead of you. Well, you know, it's just open game to <laughs> right, pass them as close off. and as fast <laughs> and as best and as easy <laughs> and look behind and shake your head and, <laughs> and, and just demoralize them, you know, that's a, that's a thing. That's a, <clears throat> yeah, we call that speed raping. It's where you go past somebody so fast and so close, it sucks their clothes off. That's right, yeah, I was the best speed raper at Daytona. I loved it because a lot of riders were a bit frightened to get up the top there, you know. Oh, just, just, you know, And I used to love going, I mean, Daytona's probably my favourite track. And when I heard the baggers really? were racing there, I thought, damn, <laughs> I, you know, I could probably still do that. What did, you, what did you ride at Daytona? Well, I rode a lot of bikes. Um, uh, I, rode, uh, I rode the Quantel Cosworth. So that was a, okay. that was an 820 parallel twin uh, bike that um, that. What year was that? That was 86. 86. Okay. That was that was pre the the GP. Okay. Yeah. And um, so Suzuki let me ride that. Um, myself, Gary Flood built that bike. Um, okay. So that bike, very interesting. You, you, your listeners could look that up, the Quantel Cosworth. But um, okay. So essentially, it, Norton put it to bed after the John Player era. Because okay. it, it, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't competitive. Um, so the owner of uh, of one of the part owners of Cosworth, who's uh, who is a motorcycle enthusiast guy called Bob Graves, he um, got the engine out of, out of Norton and Cosworth and said, "Well, let's uh, let's build it up." So uh, in in uh, the Gary Flood, when I when I um, became a, a factory rider, Gary Flood, my technician. He worked for Bob Graves, and he and a, and a company called Exact Weld um, uh, did some work on this bike. And what the bike was, it was the 820 uh, parallel twin Norton okay. with a Cosworth head, like a half a DFV car engine head. Okay. Uh, uh, and um, so, what we decided to do is bolt a swinging arm onto the gearbox, make a new cylinder head uh, to house a steering head. So the en we, uh. we made the chassis that. Complete. So the engine, so the engine was, a, was the chassis. Was the chassis, and we just made a simple monoshock cantilever, right. you know, okay. on, from the swinging arm to the, and and uh, so that because the, the the problems in the past with that JPS Norton was it was um, it was heavy, you know, because right. the engine's heavy, and then you put a chassis around, that's heavy. Right. Um, so this bike was was good. Um, 
it had uh, it had fuel injection, uh, and we tested it at Brands at Brands Hatch, and I won the twins race at Brands Hatch on it. Um, admittedly, I was only racing as painters and decorators. Yeah, God, right. God, God love them. But um, right. uh, um, it, uh, we won, and then we uh, and then we took it into into the power bike race, right. and it was competitive, pretty competitive you know, uh, yeah. with all the big bikes. But it was very hard to ride. It was on it was on off switch. Sure. So Bob Graves knew John Surtees very well, and, uh, okay. and John Surtees had some dirty old remote bowl downdraft Amel carburetors. Um, so we threw away all the Lucas fuel injection in the bin, right? And this is prior to Daytona. Yeah, Lucas and, Prince of Darkness. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and then we we put these dirty old downdraft Amol carbs on it, and okay. uh, and uh, raced it against the Ferrari team oh, of uh, Adamo and Lucanelli. Yeah. Right. And uh, and uh, you know, two laps into practice, we were already faster than them, and uh, wow. and it was it was. Pretty off. It was my first time at Daytona, but I loved it. It was just a buzz, you know, because <laughs> the bike only had a seat and tank unit, one unit. Right. So, so I can remember going around the bank at I don't know what speed, fast, you know, fast, yeah. and looking down at all the belts and driving jack shafts, and, <laughs> you know, and no chassis, you know, and uh, and uh, and so we were flying about there. Anyway, it, um, it uh, we qualified. I think we qualified second to, to Lucanelli, and uh, the, and the, I think there's a video on the race. But the race went, and uh, and uh, I soon learnt the tricks of Daytona through riding two strokes and stuff. You know? So I used <laughs> used that analogy of getting up to you know, washing off speed early on when you haven't got a lot of speed to wash off. A lot of people at Daytona come out the infield and gradually get up to the bank. Right. And, and you imagine if you're doing 100 100 mile an hour. Right. And you try and move, you, you're washing off a percentage of speed. Right. So it's best to wash off the speed when you're doing 60 mile an hour. Okay. It's the same speed, same percentage, but less, le, le, you're wasting less energy, you know. Of, uh, Interesting. Yeah, okay. yeah. So there's not many people that do it. You'll see Scott Russell and myself and, and um, well, Luke and Nelly probably come out the infield and go straight up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it looks like people are going, going away, you know. Right. But then not they go straight up the you, bank. Straight up the bank. Yeah. Going top. up the hill then slows you down a little bit. Yeah. Correct. But then you're up at the top. Then you're at the top. Then you're freewheeling. Yeah. Right. In high gear. <laughs> up there in the in the zone. Yeah. <laughs> Grinning like a Cheshire cat. <laughs> yeah. But um, so uh, so yeah, it was, it was. I was leading. You know, it was great. And then uh, and then Luke and Ellie passed me. And then. Um, into turn one, I tried to get back underneath him, and we, we I think we collided. And then Luke and Ellie, you know, on the more nimble bike and, and pretty good rider he is yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, he um he he went away, and it was up to, it was me and James Adamo, God rest his soul, Dyson, uh, oh, okay. um, uh, for second. And uh, and towards the end, uh, I was second, uh, and we were side by side at the bank, coming onto the start finishing straight. And uh, it's a bit like velodromes on a push bike, you know, only right. at 160 mile an hour, you know. Right. And uh, this is what I said anyway. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I can remember, uh, you know, being in lead, and I could I could sense James was was starting to come down, right, uh, uh, with a, for a run, you know. And so Behind I thought, you. so I thought I'll come up, yeah. So I, as I came up, I must have took his front wheel out. Oh. And uh, and he got and he came off. Oh man. And, and his bike slung into my bike 
Oh. And he's gone already. He's already sliding down the road. Right. Um, and he did a go straight to, <laughs> straight to the ambulance <laughs> section. Right. You know, it was right. an incident. It was an incident. You know, right. and, you know, didn't didn't mean to happen, but um, we collided. And did you? Did it take you down? It hit my uh, hit my right. His bike hit my right foot and broke my little toe. Uh, oh. And my bike went sideways, pointing towards the Daytona. Ooh. Sign and then on the on the wall on the on the grandstand there yeah right. and, then, and then it straightened up and ah, I finished second you know and, uh, <laughs> and, and 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 it was it was and they carried me away after the after the rostrum you know all full of drama they carried me away in the stretcher you know, I couldn't <laughs> walk away it was it's a broken little toe broken little toe very painful very painful <laughs> that was awesome and then that's as we first story. what year was that that was uh, that was eighty six. 86, and 86 then, Daytona 200. Yeah, and then, wow. uh, then uh, um, nice what crazy. was the next thing? Uh, next thing was, um, there's a really way out guy, Dr. J Dr. John Ehrlich. Dr. Dr. Ehrlich. Oh, yeah. EMC. Remember him, EMC? Yeah, yeah. Well, he designed some two-stroke. And, 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 and two-stroke. And, and expansion chamber. I think he was right. one of the forerunner in, yeah. in, in, in design expansion chamber. You know, I think it might have been an Austrian chap, but you know, I'm sure your listeners will correct me. But out there, proper out there. <laughs> you know, you know, he, he would, because you know, remember I was uh, at the British Grand Prix in 83, and uh, you know, that sensational thing we, we had, I, I had, my little, had my little hot dog stand, you know, <laughs> caravan, because everyone else had their motorhomes, and someone let me a little caravan to change my leathers and stuff. It was, like a hot dog stand, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and and I couldn't believe it. when I in between practice sessions I'd come out my door and see all these people wanting autographs. It was just blew my mind, you know. <laughs> right. They'd come out this hot dog stand, but then uh, I can remember <laughs> I can remember sitting in there and then uh, Doctor Ehrlich had been talking to a guy that was going to be my manager, right? And they must have been drinking champagne, I don't know, at lunchtime. But they came into my little hot dog stand and said, "Right, we've signed you up for Honda." So and so, so and so, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. Oh, no, no, no. He said, "I've signed you up to Dr. Ehrlich, Dr. Right. Ehrlich." And at that stage, we were, I was hoping to talk to Honda Britain, right. and uh, and um, yeah, Dr. Ehrlich had already signed me up. So I ended up with a relationship with Dr. Ehrlich, and uh, he <laughs> said, "Well, so we raced his bike, his 250. He had a inline twin, yeah, yeah, a bit like a Rotax, right? Yeah. Okay, and." Um, and so we raced that at Daytona in the 250 or 200, uh, 250. Okay. The 250 class. Oh, 250 class. 200, I think yeah. it's the Daytona 100, I think. I don't know what they call it. But there was uh, Kaczynski, Bellington, myself, uh, all the uh, Yankee guys, um, Donnie Green, uh, okay. Danny Coe, God love, you know, the fastest Juno in the world, you know, right. or was. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, a bunch of bunch of other folk. It was a good big field, you know, it's incredible. And in practice, you know, that EMC seized on me three times. Oh. And, and and I can tell you where they seized, exactly. You know, so coming off the back bank, as soon as it, the bank flattens out, and as soon as you roll off the throttle to go into the chicane, right. whoop, it seize up there. Oh, and I, I got to the stage where I'd catch it, you know, right. it wouldn't throw me off. But, uh, you know, in the race, we, were, uh, we qualified, I think, second, it was, I think it was you know, the guys who I can't remember, I think it was Bellington, myself, Kaczynski, and <laughs> it was a good, good field. That's, that's some serious talent. Yeah, yeah, and, but, uh, but the bike seized up in the race, so uh. um, yeah, yeah. So nice. the next day, Tony was, was a meeting with um, a lovely man, he's probably one of my best friends 
uh, that I met over in America, a guy called Martin Adams okay. from, from uh, Kentucky. Yeah, he, he's, right. he soon was the owner or the principal owner of Smoke and Joe. Oh, yeah. okay. So Commonwealth Honda. Right. And I got a, had a lovely relationship with, with Martin and, and uh, we, um, we raced his Honda semi incognito factory dirt track and Honda <laughs> in, uh, in the Twins race against the Condell Cosworth, funny enough. And, oh, okay. And, um, and uh, well, let me think for that. But we, but, um, we uh, in, in practice, you know, I was on fire. I was, we were flying. We were already right. doing, some, doing some great things. It was a lovely bike. It was like, like the frontal area of an RS250, but an 860 between dirt track and flat track and bike. You know? Wow. It had carburetors out the side. <laughs> right because it was a dirt bike for clean, clean air. Right. So you had to be careful when you were down the straight, your knee would cover up the front cylinder uh, exhaust <laughs> pipe. And when you go around the infield, you, you got to be careful your thigh didn't cover the rear cylinder um, carb. Intake, in, intake, yeah. intake, yeah. But um, we, we did, what did we do there? Um, I think there, that's right, we, I, I thought I'd won. No, oh. And Dale Courtley will, will you know. Right. Uh, when I said this once on, on social media, Dale Courtley, Wrote, wrote, wrote back a, a whole piece in, hell, in uh, caps, you know. <laughs> but what happened was that uh, I led the race, led the race, led the race, led the race, and, and we were flying, there's dice between me and uh, Quarterly. And over the finishing line, I, you know, I looked up. You know, Dale obviously um, slipstreamed me and pulled out and right. beat me by two inches. That's what the starter said right. with the flag. Yeah, you so know. That's what happens at Daytona. That's yeah. happened today. And, and the fact that he was American, and, uh, and he was looking up, you know, he's got probably a good eyesight, but I reckon him looking at those two bikes doing 180 mile an hour, he probably had a better view than me. Right. Yeah. But, right. Because, of course, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're side by side, both doing 180 mile an hour, you might as well just get off and walk because you can talk to each other. Right. Because you, you know, it's, sure. it's relative, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Like one of you's doing one mile an hour more yeah. than the other. Anyway, so it was disappointing because Dale beat me then, bugger him. But, uh, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but then I raced the bike at the same bike at uh, Laguna Seca. In oh, the, right. in, and love that track. Love that track. Laguna is fun. Yeah. And Dale beat me again there. You know? oh. So uh, so, uh, but you know, we had a, we had a good race there, and then the, went back to Daytona uh, the following year to race against the Nemesis, the the, the Quantel Cosworth. They gave that to Roger Marshall, and uh, I was racing the Commonwealth Honda, and oh, okay. I really. Yeah, you know, I had bad, a little bit of bad blood with the Cosworth people, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it was, and, and you know, it's good to beat your old team, you know, right. you know like footballers, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know you're gonna, gonna kick a goal. Yeah. But um, and so we, I had a 14 second lead uh, uh, with on the nine, 10th or ninth lap, and uh, and it seized up coming out of um, oh, what a shame. coming out of the infield. Yeah, what a shame. that's a hell of a career you've had. Though, There's you? one more. I, I'm going. I'm going on a bit. Go on then. So, so then, uh, then with regards to Daytona, then it right. was John Britton. So John. Oh, so you rode the Britton. So yeah. So John Britton uh, said to me, yeah, you know, "Do you fancy riding the the Britton?" You know, and um, this was 1990. Oh, wow. This is the year Doug Pollen won the Super World Superbike Championship. So the Britain I was to ride was um, was the precursor. So uh, it was a Britain, right? But it was it wasn't the Britain. So know? it was like a, a sort of a prototype yeah. before the, the yeah. ten that he actually. I didn't realise it was a prototype. Yeah, there was precursor. So if you really? have a look, um, I think uh, Motorcycle News did a story on 
on all the different bikes of Britain. Oh, and it was a and John Britton is such a was a brilliant chap, you know. He, he, yeah. He was uh, he was so clever, and you know, he would have trouble being articulate because he was so, his mind was thinking right miles ahead of everyone right, else. You know? Sure. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, it was so, such a great team to ride for um, because. Sure. Um, what an interesting man. I mean, that must have been fascinating oh, to, yeah, to yeah. talk to him. Oh, it was. And, and, and was he personable at all? Absolutely. And, you know, I'd come in up at the pits and before I'd go off the bike, he'd already known I'd missed a gear, you know, because even in them days, in, it was 1990, they had telemetry in them, in them days, you know. Oh, and, okay. And, uh, and he had, there's a, there a chap there, I don't know his Kiwi name, but they, they call him the printer. And so <laughs> by the time I got off the bike, he'd already had a print out. <laughs> printing out uh, uh, all the all the telemetry, all the bad things I did to the bike along the way, <laughs> and um, anyway, so it uh, there's and he'd an say, Paul, you missed a gear. Yeah, you don't you shouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not not angrily. You know, he's, no. a, he's a lovely chap. You know, really. And uh, there was oh. another. Uh, there was two bi two riders. There was me right. and a really nice guy called Steve Crevier, a Canadian rider. Sure, yeah, and, and a great rider. You know? Yeah. So yeah. we it was a and a fun guy too. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, always laughing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Proper guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, so imagine that both of us in the same <laughs> kit with Britons, you know, the Kiwis and, that, and some Aussies there as well in the mix, a couple of Canadians, you know. Right. It, it was good fun. That must have been great. So, yeah. what was the Briton like to ride? I was really, I was fantastic. The the issue we had with that day, I mean, I finished second, you know, to, right. to, but, and it was it was good because we were dicing with Poland the whole way. Steve Crevier, unfortunately, he broke down. Right. Uh, probably lap two or three. I know Steve will know. Sure. Can't really remember what, what lap it was, but me and Doug just pulled away from everybody. Sure. And on lap three, I had a really interesting thing happen to the to the rideability of, of my bike. Is that uh, is that um, down the straights it was awesome, you know, and in the infield it was it would just go on one cylinder mid mid corner, and coming out it would mid it'd be on one cylinder, then then chime in at two cylinders. And we finished the whole race like that. It was quite difficult to ride. Oh, I, I remember I had a huge bruise on me on my chest um uh from from the bike coffee banging me just into banging the, you on the petrol tank, on, on the petrol tank. but uh oh and when we finished the race it, you know i think doug won by he won by a distance anyway and um and uh when when we pulled the bike apart the rear fuel injection stack had come loose off the manifold uh. and so it was only the, only when i was full throttle that the K, the cable actuation would pull the stack tight onto the manifold, and then it would, oh, <laughs> it, it, it would run, you know. So with the, with John Britton, did you um, have any input in with the precursor? Did you have any input into what became the final bike? And did uh, you stay in touch with John? I did stay in touch, and um, yeah, and also was good friends with Mark Farmer as well, who rode who rode John's bike. Uh, unfortunately, he died at, on the bike at. Um, Right. In, the, in the old man, which was which was terrible for for right. everybody. Um, yeah, sure. uh, but you know, after that race, John, was, you'd never seen a happier man finishing second at Daytona. Right. You know, and um, you know, I can remember we were all staying at the Speedway Inn across the road. You know, the Speedway Inn there. Right. And I think that the, the drink at the time was a screaming multiple orgasm. <laughs> that, that, that he, that John quite liked the sound of, you know, and, and, and it was and it was happy hour, you know. So I think John ordered twenty four of them, so we got forty eight of them. You know? and, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, the story goes from there, but um, yeah, it was yeah. so fun. And then uh, you know, after Daytona, he was certainly stayed in touch. Uh, any input I had probably didn't have, you know, 
only input I really had was on the day of racing the, the, the precursor. Okay. Um, uh, you know, of course, the the eventual you know, final Britain was radically different in suspension compared right. to to this one. I think the precursor, uh, right? The, sure. The precursor, but uh, and unfortunately with with John, you know, I I, um, I think the fact that Mark died on his bike in in, in, in the Isle of Man, you know, really took, took its toll. Took its toll, and I, and. I think everyone's got like a switch in them, you know, right. and, or everyone's got something, you know, in this case it was a cancer or some sort of thing inside them that just needs some sort of trigger. And, that, and, and the loss of Mark Farmer was, you know, I'm going goosey now, was horrendous for yeah, John. Sure. And I saw him after, not long after the old man and he'd, yeah. He'd, he'd lost something. Yeah, he'd lost something. Yeah. Oh, yeah what a tragedy. Something. So very, very sad and uh, sad for everyone. Everyone to lose one Mark Farmer, who's fun, great rider, and and John Britton, one of the best minds in the industry. You know, there ever sure. was. Yeah. For sure. Mm. Yeah. And then the last Daytona I rode was um, I rode uh, for Steve Wynn Ducati on a factory okay. Ducati ish. It was a 1028. Right. He was the guy who put together Haywood's Correct. final bike. Correct. You know, and, uh, yeah, the, on the Isle of Man, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we had Steve Wynn. Ferracci was helping us as okay. well. And it was after the superbike, I was in that superbike race. Right. And, uh, and I think we were, uh, I think I'd qualified you know, in the top three. And then um, I had a, um, a crash coming out of the infield and broke my hand. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was when you sort of finally decided to just call it a day, am I right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I had um, I had some uh, some personal uh, uh, things happen then as well. You know, right. Uh, there was a lot lot going on. And you were just like, you know, what, it's time to do something. Well, else. I think the the um, you know I had to get a proper job. You know. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, I, my son was I hear that. my son Jackson was born in 1990, and uh, okay. his uh, he was born with some difficulties. He had had some issues. Oh, okay. He was born with Down syndrome and heart oh, defect and oh. stuff. Not that it, you know, I, I still, I, ca I, I came out of retirement and raced with him later, later on. I'll tell you okay. about that, if I'm not going on too much. No, no, uh, no, no. But, uh, yeah, so 1990, was, it, was, it was hectic. Jackson was born and, and uh, he had open heart surgery. And it was, oh. it was all, all very, very, very sad and tough, you know, because you get thrown into a disabled world that you weren't ready for. And, sure. you know, it was tough. Yeah, lots of people and go very time-consuming. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And look, you know, it's um, a lot of people go through tough times, you know. And uh, you know, I, I, I think um, I'm just one of many. You know, everyone's, right. everyone's got a story. Sure. You know? And sure. Uh, so, um, so I you know, went and got a proper job. Went to see um, one of my sponsors, uh, a company called Heingerica. Heard Heingerica? Sure, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the um, the the boss got one of, of their tank bags actually. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. <laughs> so the boss of Heingerica was a guy called Tom Walker, and he, he used to okay. sponsor me with leathers and I used to get sure. helmets and stuff like yeah. that. And uh, anyway, Tom, I went to Tom's office in Harringate there, and I said, uh, I need a proper job, you know? <laughs> and he said, I don't know what I'm going to give you, but uh, you're hired. <laughs> and uh, and so, so he hired me as the business development manager of Heingerica. And, um, oh, wow. and so what my role was, was, <coughs> to, um, was to go about the UK and find appropriate sites to, to put a Heingerica store, you know, and then, uh, oh, and then nice. do the due diligence, you know, find, the, you know, get, get the store up and running, um, uh, wow. st uh, staff it, stock it. And uh, so we did, um, we did Southampton, we did Bristol, 
we did Yorkshire. Oh, that's like a real job. I mean, yeah, well, it was a real job. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a real job. Oh, I needed a real job too, because yeah. I, need, I needed, you know, to have a real job. <laughs> a real <laughs> because, job, and that's Because in my day of racing, it was one year you spend a hundred, one year you might earn a hundred grand, the next year you're spending a hundred grand. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then the next year you're still spending a hundred grand. <laughs> right. And yeah. the next year you're broke, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, um, and, and uh, so that was that was Hungarica, and, and and it was great. You know, it, it yeah. was. It, it's a great brand, and they make a lot of great products. Yeah, it serves a good purpose. We opened up a few stores, and uh, I got the stage where I, I just wanted I, the, the one store I set up in Southampton in Commercial Road. I wanted to have that store. I wanted to be in, in the front line because I like talking to people and right. and stuff. So I, Tom Walker gave me that store uh, to uh, to run and look after. Um, so I did that. And then uh, um, a chap um, uh, came in the shop one day and, uh, you know, mystery shopney, and, <laughs> but his view was to open up a Harley Davidson dealership in, um, in Southampton and, oh. and didn't, uh, didn't know how to do it. Right. Um, so, uh, and I liked Harleys, you know, right. I've always liked Harleys because sure. in my racing contracts, it was generally in Helvetica Bold, you know, no winter skiing or no sports bikes. Right. So, like a footballer, most Harley, most footballers and motorcycle riders, you ride a Harley because it's not a motorbike, you know. It's, <laughs> right, because you know. they don't bother putting it in the contract. No, no, it's, okay. it's yeah. a Harley. You know, I think now, I think people wake up to it because the Harleys are pretty bloody good. Right, <laughs> the they're baggers. very good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's two over there that are pretty bloody good. Right. But, um, yeah, so, uh, so I eventually left Hyngarica and set up with, uh, with a guy and we, we opened up Dockgate 20 Harley Davidson in Southampton. Oh. On the A35 there, and and we soon it soon became the number one Harley Davidson dealership in the UK, and, and wow. uh, you know a lot of people would say to me, you know, what do you what's a road racer doing in a Harley store? And um, uh, you know, for me, it's getting back to the 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 step through and the uh, posty bike and the in, with grass growing through it. The Harley's a bit like that. It's a front right. wheel and a back wheel and an engine. Right, and it epitomises a motorbike, and that's what that's what right. I like. You know, it's yeah. it's started up, and you ride it with a flat tire, and you know, and Just, a pair of shorts, yeah. and you know, you'll be all right. Yeah, you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you still still get home. You couldn't you couldn't do that on a right. Panigale or something. You know, you'd have to yeah. you'd have to have everything all going for you before you rode rode that home with a flat tire. But uh, anyway, so cut long story short, that went, that, and went, that was hence the thing at Mallory, the challenge. So yeah, be, so what happened there was before that in, in uh, 1997, um, a guy called Amadeo uh, Costolotti. No, he's not Costolotti. Amadeo. <laughs> I can't think of his surname. Everyone calls him Costolotti, but he's the main man with with uh, with Raceco Guzzi. He's a man. He's, okay. he's the Dr. John of Motor Guzzi okay. in the UK and Italy. Okay. And he said to me, um, he came into uh, the Heinegger store before this, right. and said, uh, "Look, we're testing." our motor guzzy at Mallory Park. Do you fancy having a ride of it? This is 1997, seven years after I retired. I said, right. yeah, I'd love to have a ride of it. You know? yeah. So I grabbed some leathers off the shelf you know, and, and, uh, and uh, went to Mallory Park you know, to ride this, uh, this uh, guzzy. And you know, I, was, I smashed the lap record on lap three. Loved it. <laughs> Probably one of the best bikes I've ever ridden. <laughs> really? it, had, it was just... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I love these animals, these big animals that you have to sort of control, and, that, and they had so much power, and it was, and, 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 and it was great. And and, uh, and he said, "Do you want to race it?" And, and so, in the World Bears and the and the British Battle of Twins, I said, "Well," and I thought to myself, "Well, I've got all these friends of mine that have always heard about stories from the north, you know, and right. the old days." Now I thought, wouldn't it be good to go racing again 
in a, in a relaxed environment in, in the twins race, you know, right. you're racing against Ducatis and stuff like that, you know, um, right. and, uh, but generally not super, super professional guys, you know, right. uh, and, uh, and you're on a guzzy, you know, so, right. so it evens it up a bit. <laughs> and so I had, uh, I had my, one of my guys, he's a guy called David Payne, he was, uh, he's the leading man in fibre optics, friend of mine, he said, I'll do the barbecue. And then one of my flatmates said, oh, can I do the pit board? Yeah, do the pit board. So built up the whole team about this. And then right, and Emma Dea said, uh, and I, anyway, I won every race bar one and won the British Championship on that guzzy. And, wow. And, um, <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, it's a cu you, you'll be able to find it. There's a couple of races on the, at Brands Hatch yeah. to the World Superbikes. The World Bears was on there. And I was that close to beating Andrew Stroud on the Britain. I, I was oh, on wow. the, on the guzzy, but it, it blew up uh, on lap nine. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, wow. someone, yeah, so that's a few stories. But what was the story about, uh, you know, somebody challenged you and you, you said, I'll, I'll put up money for anyone who can beat me on a Harley around Mallory? Yeah, so, so <laughs> yeah, twice. I got front page of motorcycle, British motorcycle news twice, you know. Okay. So I did it twice. Uh, I did the bet twice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it's real, real funny because I was in the, in the Harley business then, and and um, and uh, we're just trying to yeah, trying to generate publicity. And I and, and I love the Harleys. We had I had an FXDX, a 103 FXDX that was really quick. You know, okay. It was you know stupidly quick and, and, and handled pretty good. And I also had a Roking that was stupidly quick as well. Okay. And uh, um, so. Uh, and these were like mid 90s bikes. Uh, no, this was um, this was uh, this was probably two thousand and two. Oh, really? Two okay. Two thousand. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it was probably two. Maybe no, no, maybe nineteen ninety eight, two thousand. Okay, I, but I, around you, that era. You, okay. You'll find. You, I think I've got a copy of the the okay. front front page. Okay. So the bit was, you know, I, well, I said to one of the guys, one of the journalists, who who was it? Who was it? You probably know them. Oh. I can't think of their name, their name now. A lot of the Pommy journos have... Uh, long before Michael Neves' time. Yeah. It wouldn't have been Michael Neves. Yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, but yeah. Anyway, so, they, so I said to him, yeah, I'm, I'm going to race somebody around Mallory Park. Cold tyres, cold start, dead from a dead start, one lap, <laughs> 10 grand pounds, my 10 grand pounds on the starting line in a glass box. Right. Your 10 grand Right. In a glass box, so anybody, but motorcycle news turn around and say anyone without a racing license. You know? Okay. So, and you write anything you like, write anything you like. You know. Okay. So, so my rationale was, you know, I'll, I'll beat a few, right. I'll beat a few, and one, one might go, I might go. But I thought, well, they're not going to beat me into the Gerards. Okay. Doesn't matter what they're on. Okay. They won't. They won't beat Harley into the Gerards. You know. Okay. They won't pass me around Gerards. Because I'll be, I'll take up the whole, <laughs> the whole, the whole road, whole width of the track. Coming out, they might pass me into the S's, might you know, <laughs> uh, but then their curtains into the into the uh, hairpin because I'll take them out there and and uh, so it's easy. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I'll do it. Oh, I mean, <laughs> you know, so but, but always it was about a publicity thing, really. You know, sure. I wasn't being a smart ass. You know, right. I was kind of a smart ass. I was kind okay. of a smart ass. Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a load of people saying, "You cheeky bastard!" You know, oh, beat you on my brief, on my jigsaw, on my fireblade. And, uh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, but they wouldn't know to put up the money. Nobody know? actually put the, the money. money yeah, yeah, so cold tyres. And then, <laughs> and, then so, and then I can remember um, Roy, Roy Pinto, who's the head of marketing of Harley Davidson, right. when the motorcycle news came out, he rang me up saying, brilliant, 
Brilliant. Good on you, Louis. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And then five minutes later, you must have had a phone call from Milwaukee to say, what's going on here? Public you know, <laughs> <laughs> liability. Can't do this, can't do this. Oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> so then I did it again a, a few months later for 20000 and uh, yeah, it didn't. And happen. nobody took it up. Mm, I'll bet. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And now here you are at Salt. Yeah, so, uh, um, yeah, so the, the, I was 26 years in the UK and um, right. I, I do like, like the UK. And I've got a lot of very, very close friends there, and sure. yeah, especially in the motorcycle industry. You know, right. but, uh, my wife, uh, Teresa, is, uh, is Czech, met her in, in, uh, in the UK 20 years ago, and uh, we're, um, we're always going to come home. I've got. I've got um, sure. I've got you know, Jackson in the in the UK. He's thirty one now, oh, wow. and, and fit as a fiddle, and and uh, proper Mancunian. You know, loves curry and uh, <laughs> and stuff, and, and oh, he's he's a real star. And I've got uh, uh, a daughter, thirteen, Vivian. She, she's um, nice. awesome. Jamie's fifteen. He's a super duper downhill mountain bike. Oh wow! Uh, guru, and uh, um, yeah, so we we live in Queensland, and and. Uh, yeah. This I know you're partnered with Salt. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a new, another new journey. Another new venture. Yeah. Good yeah. for you. So yeah, you were talking about engine development with Salt. How yeah. Did that so come about? right. So um, we've always wanted to build a, our own Australian motorbike. That was that's 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 Brendan James is the founder, is is mantra. Is that let's build an Australian motorcycle and mine. You know? Sure. That, that was that sure. was the lure that pulled me away from being a dealer principal at Morgan Wacker for ten years. Right. Okay. Yeah, and uh, um, and uh, so the that the quest was we need to we you know we need an engine we need we need a chassis we need we need a, an idea of what we're going to build and uh, and so that's that has been on the boards ever since. Right. The two-stroke the Salt two-stroke is the vehicle that we could do straight away to, yeah. to, to keep us all motivated and right. the passion there you know because we yeah. all like like a two-stroke brendan loves it i love it you know right and, for and sure so, of course and, he does. so um one of the, one of the guys uh in uh, one of our team is a guy called bill white in um in new zealand he's uh okay he's uh, uh, a guru of engines um he's uh he even helped Britain, John Britton, um, oh, wow. uh, with with some of his uh, his engine issues and, and whatnot. Right. So we're in the middle of developing and nearly there a, a little V8 engine. So the V8 engine is is uh, is on the way, but um, but the main thing we're, we're trying to do with it is we're trying to make it run on on hydrogen. Um, so uh. we're we firmly understand. Let me just step back a few steps there. The sister company here is a company called Line Hydrogen, and they Line Hydrogen. Line Hydrogen, and okay. they're a, they're a new company. Okay. Uh, well, well, not that new. It, Brennan's been uh, on the hydrogen bandwagon for years, and and uh, ah, okay. and so they've got uh, uh, sites all all around Australia, earmarked to produce green hydrogen, to store green hydrogen, and to dispense green hydrogen. Right. Um, okay. So the 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 for me, you know, to try and get funding to make more salt two-strokes, uh, we, we all know in, internal combustion engines are going to be a thing of the past. We don't want that to happen, right? And 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 we know that 
Toyota. So you're trying to come up with hydrogen as an alternative fuel for an internal combustion Correct. engine. Correct. Yeah. And, and so the beauty part about the connection with line hydrogen is because we've got the technology. We 100% got the technology with really? line hydrogen with the, our engineers and the development we've done so far, refuel cells. Because at the end of the day, you won't see you won't see a motorcycle with a fuel cell with a battery. No. Yeah, the cost of it. it right. Even a car, to be honest, a fuel cell, right. a battery, you know, it's more industrial stuff that the, the, the fuel cell is going to be rel relative. Any fuel cell cars you see at the moment, they must be hugely subsidised by the manufacturer sure. to get them on the road. But, uh, and, and it's common knowledge that Porsche, Toyota, Yamaha are already working on internal combustion engines running on hydrogen. With alternate fuels. I think With Porsche announced that, didn't they, probably six months ago? Yeah. There's an alternate yeah. fuel they've got. Yeah. Well, we're, we're some way down the road there too. Really? And, um, wow. uh, so that's, um, that's the exciting part of the, the SALT journey for me, is that to produce a, a, a motorcycle that actually... And, right. Yeah. A and reciprocating engine that can run on hydrogen. Yeah. And it can be done. It's, it's not... It's not I was going to say it's not rock, rocket science. Well, it kind of is rocket science. It is rocket science. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's not. It's not. It's, it's not that difficult. You know, it's not that difficult. And I mean, well, hydrogen needs to be, you know, kept at huge pressures, doesn't it? I mean, that's the problem. And it's highly explosive. Well, so. I think you know, so is a barbecue um, gas. You know. Uh, true. The, you know, you mean yeah, like like propane. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was at the uh, the local supermarket on the weekend, and I was pulled up. You know, right, right behind the swap and go. You know? Right. But those things, <laughs> they're, you know, they're... <laughs> the propane cylinder, yeah. Propane, you know. That's a freaking bomb, right? Yeah, there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, tech, the technology now, yeah. the, the, with, with composites and, you know. Right. It, that's not the problem. That, that, that's, okay. I think that, that whole, um, you know, Zeppelin, hydrogen, you know, anxiety, it's, it's not that. It's not that. Okay. No, I, 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 you know, I firmly think that, uh, that we're, hydrogen's in abundance and you know, we need to... Sure, it's the most plentiful um, yeah. And look at the fuel. The planet, I mean, it? I don't know how much petrol is in America, but $2.30 is a, is a litre is expensive here. Yeah, yeah what well, is it? Oil's currently at, what, one thirty a barrel or something? Yeah, That's yeah. insane. So, uh, you know, I think we've, we've got some ways to go, but, you know, I'm... I'm you know, I'm pretty sure that uh, that we'll have we'll have an engine next year. We'll have we'll be showcasing something. Really, as yeah. soon as that. Yep. Wow. Yep. Okay, we'll be back. Yeah. Good. We'll be back. So yeah. So just to re reiterate, with my with our salt two strokes, it'd be good if uh, some of your listeners were, would would get in touch with us and yeah. let us know if they'd be interested in, in us um, supplying them. Well, our, our audience is mainly American, but. But uh, as we talked about earlier, essentially, if somebody already has a KTM or can get hold of a, a tagged, you know, KTM mm. 390. No, 300. 300. 300. Or, or 300. 250 or 300. 250 or, yeah, okay. Yeah, the 390 is a four-stroke, so okay. you, 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 um, Yeah, sorry, I'm so used to saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, somebody can get, if somebody already has that or can get hold of one already tagged, you can then supply a kit mm. to turn it into one of these cafe races. Sure, sure. And which would yeah. then be road legal. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Hey, Paul, thank you so much. That's freaking awesome. No, good.